Last week, we've been, uh, I, I, we've been, you don't have a choice, I've been on a Pentecost kick, right? And it's just, it's been so important to me to really mark this season. Um, we are now back in ordinary time liturgically. Um, we are out of the Pentecost season. We won't go back into uh, a season until Advent before Christmas. So this whole next stretch here is ordinary time, but it's anything but ordinary, right? And Pentecost is a... Uh, is a real milestone. Pentecost changes everything in terms of the spiritual breakthrough that we have been defining it as. And uh, we've been talking about how different is it and how is it different and how do we approach it and, and can we get some concrete steps. And so last week we were talking about the fact that the thing that blocks us from a spiritual breakthrough most securely, I suppose would be a word to use, is that our whole world, our whole system is based on performance for approval. It's a legal system. And so that's natural for us to approach everything that way. We learned it as kids in our homes, and we learned it so well that we impute it to God. And we understand God now has been a legal judge and that it's performance to approve, be approved by him. And that mindset is the killer of any kind of spiritual breakthrough to a completely different system, a system that's based in grace, a system that's based in indiscriminate, unconditional love, love that is reigned evenly on everybody, love that is unjust. So trying to get our heads wrapped around that is the first step, but that isn't the only thing. It's then trying to get that into our actions deep enough that it actually makes a transforming change. And we talked about you can't even start the process. If the physical world in, in your worldview is so strong, so solid, you can't see anything behind it. But as it starts to crack and crumble, and just time and age and time on the planet will do that, but we can also hasten the process by bringing our own spiritual sledgehammer to the task. And it's through the cracks of the physical world that we see the first glimpses of the spiritual world in a whole different way of understanding life. And we were talking about that last week. I was talking about we need to do this. So I was talking to someone um, later on in the week, and he said that, you know, I, I really I love the sermon. He was watching by remote, and he said, my wife and I were right with you until about five minutes before the end. And then he said, I heard you say that we had to leave everything in the physical world in order to be able to be in the spiritual world. We had to leave our families and leave our relationships and leave all this... And, and he said, so we kind of thought that you were out to lunch then at that point. And, and I'm shaking my head, and it's like nothing could be further from the truth. And I'm thinking about how many times that I've talked about liminal space. I've talked about balance. I've talked about how the fact that no matter how much we say that we need to see between the cracks of the physical world in order to embrace the spiritual, as long as we're breathing here, we're living under the system. There's no way to leave it. We have to be under the law. We have to be beholden to obedience and performance on that level. But to infuse it, to layer over the fact that we have this love that cannot be lost because it can't be gained. And because of that, it reinfuses everything we do in the physical world with meaning and purpose and the ability to see beyond the obedience to find that law of liberty that James talks about, where we're no longer obeying, we are just being who we are, and it looks like law. You know, communication is really tough. You ever found that out? 
it is so hard to communicate, especially in, in, a, in a, you know, a venue like this where it's all one way. It's just a monologue. You, know, you can give me the stink eye if you want to, but other than that, you know, I, I don't really know what's necessarily going on in your heads, and especially not across a camera. And so I was really disappointed that somehow that got across to him because I have tried so hard to keep my own life balanced in this way and to find that balance in this way but also to try to communicate it as well. So then I have another conversation. And this is with a guy that I've known for years, and we've had an ongoing conversation, but he's in another state, so it's a remote kind of thing. So once again, it's, it's a correspondence, it's a give and take. But I've noticed that he's becoming, I guess, more and more frustrated. Uh, with, and he calls it pushing back on some of the things that I'm saying. So our last conversation, after I had the one that I just told you about, he accused me of being a fundamentalist. Now, I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> that has not been one of them. But now, I know what he meant was not that I was a conservative, because my theology is anything but conservative, but he meant that I was being, um, what's the word for it? I was being inflexible. And I thought about that. You know, I, I really had, it took me aback. Both of these conversations took me aback. You know, Am I being inflexible? And what does that mean if I'm being inflexible? Um, a fundamentalist, and I've said this so many times, a fundamentalist can be a, f a fundamentalist on either side of the fence, any fence, any issue. It's the person who is not defined by having a deeply held conviction or a belief, because Jesus had those, I have those, you have those. So it's not that you have the beliefs that makes you a fundamentalist. It's being intolerant to any other belief that would make you a fundamentalist in this, in this definition we're trying to work out. That you believe that what you believe is absolutely and certainly right and everybody else is wrong. And those people who are wrong need to be persuaded, converted, or beaten down, or simply ignored, but they can't be entertained as on equal footing with you because they are not in your camp. Now, I don't think that describes me. Um, I've tried to hold an open tent, but I really have to think about this and think about the, the criticism that's being laid. And then he said this. He said, you know, I think you should ask your wife if she thinks you're as centered and balanced as you think you are. <laughs> haven't done that yet. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I know that in the context of our friendship and our relationship, that wasn't as, um, you know, as hard a hit as it may sound to you just listening to it. It's kind of given in the give and take of, of you know, who we've been for, for years now. But the question remains, have I become dogmatic? And that's a question that I need to keep asking myself. Have I gotten, have I fallen into um, a hole, a rut of my own making? You know, you can be a non-conformist, but as soon as you make a profession of it, you're just a conformist in something else. And so I want to make sure that's not happening to me. But I had to think about what is it? that is going on between us, that he would think that of me. And as I was kind of going through a lot of our conversations in my mind, I was realizing that his pushbacks, the things that he comes back to me, his refutations or whatever, um, challenges to what I had said, 
um, weren't moving my needle much. You know, I, I, I admit that. He wasn't dissuading me or persuading me to his side of things. And yet, on the other hand, I probably agree with 80-plus percent of what he says and, and how he's going about his journey, and I re- respect and admire him for the, the doggedness with which he is searching for truth. But I don't know if I've told him that. So it's kind of like that boss that you have that the only time you hear from the boss is when you're doing something wrong. Even if most of your work is right, but the only time you hear from them is when there's a problem. And all that hard work you're doing, everything that is good, is never validated. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe that's what it is, you know, that I haven't balanced out, you know, what it is is the full content of, of, our, of our conversation. And so he would be frustrated by what he sees as my inflexibility because I'm not moving on these particular things, and yet... There's all this connection that we continue to have. And, of course, it's exacerbated by the fact that it's remote. And so we're just dealing with snapshots of each other's thoughts at a moment. We don't have the give and take. And we don't see ourselves on a day-to-day basis to see how we operate in life. And so the question does remain, have I gone over to the dark side? And so I've been thinking about this. And I will be considering this, and I'll really be thinking about this going forward because I always want to keep myself open. But now to begin the segue into something that goes away from the personal and into some general principles that we can all use as we go forward, I need to tell you this. I don't really trust my thoughts that much anymore. I don't really go by just the thoughts in my head because I know at best they're incomplete. And most likely... They're wrong much more than I would like to admit. Certainly inaccurate, at least. But here's the thing. I don't expect my thoughts to be completely accurate. I don't need my thoughts to be completely accurate anymore. No one's thoughts, when it comes to spiritual issues and spiritual concepts, no one's thoughts are accurate. I don't care who they are. They can be coming from the Vatican, They can be coming from any pulpit anywhere, any denomination anywhere. They're not accurate because it's impossible for them to be so. We can't sit here from our perch in finite human flesh and absolutely and accurately describe something that by its definition stands outside of everything that we know and everything that we can express. But what we think can be close enough to be able to point to truth. And I think that's as good as it gets. We don't have to say that what we believe and our convictions are accurate, but are they pointing us to a truth? Are they taking us on a journey? Think about Jesus for a second. Jesus focused on the effect of belief on the lives, on the relationships, on the community of all the people that he was trying to reach, on their choices, on their attitudes, on their ability to love, basically. He wasn't focused so much on a theology. He was focused on the effect of that theology and what it allowed people to do or what it prevented people to be able to do. In other words, if you can love like Jesus, if you can approach life with two things in hand, you can accept life on life's terms, 
exactly as it presents, good, bad, and ugly, without medicating it away, without changing your conscience, consciousness in any way, without having to distract yourself. If you can accept life as it presents, and you can still live with a sense of hope, with a sense of gratitude, with a sense that everything really is going to be okay, if you can do that, then your beliefs are accurate enough. They'll take you where you need to go. Because truth, if you come right down to it, truth isn't true in isolation, all by itself somewhere out there in abstract land. It's true in the unity that it creates in our lives. That's how you know something is true, by the effect that it has. Jesus said, they will know that you are my followers by your love when the effect of everything that you say you believe, everything that you're convinced of, causes you to love others, and especially those that you would consider not of your tribe, not of your blood. If you can do that, then you are my followers. It's all about this effect. So new ideas at this point in my life, and I've been doing this for a while now, don't move my needle much. I have to be honest with you. But here's the deeper truth. I'm not hearing any new ideas anymore. What did uh, Solomon say in Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. I'm not hearing new ideas. Now, what I am hearing are fascinating new expressions of old ideas, of ideas that have been around since the beginning. And that's wonderful. That's, that it's enriching. But they're not new. There is nothing new under the sun. You might have heard me say that if I think I've had an original thought, I just haven't read enough. You know, absolutely. There's so many times when I've had a thought that I thought was, wow, I'm brilliant. And then I just read a little bit more, and there it is. You know, if there is any thought that can be thunk, it already has been. I mean, think about it. Of the billions and billions of people that have graced this planet, do you think that really they haven't experienced what you're experiencing? Really, you are the one unique person. We, we, we move in cycles as human beings. These thoughts are continuing to move through. You know? So my deepest convictions are much less about inherent accuracy, inherent rightness, much less about the ideas or the thoughts themselves, and they're more about the effect that my convictions have on my relationships, have on my life. If they're producing more connection, and especially if they're producing less tension, less anxiety, then I tend to hold on to them. And they're not, I'm not easily dissuaded from them. I just got this wonderful text from a woman, and she ended her text by saying, life is so exciting. Learning is so thrilling. It just keeps better and better, no matter the depth of the unexpected valleys. I'll have what she's having. Whatever she believes right now, and I don't know if it's Christian, non-Christian, where it comes from, what she believes allows her to experience life like that. And I know her work as a grief counselor. She's amazing at what she does. And I don't think there's anything there that's broke that needs to be fixed, even if I don't agree with the thought. What it allows her to do, to see life as exciting and thrilling and getting better and better, that's it. Do your beliefs allow you to do that? We have a series of slides up here. You may see one coming up. Does your faith make you feel like this? 
One of my favorite ones is Leonard Bernstein, just enthralled as he's conducting, and his face is back, and you can just see he's transfixed by the music. Does your faith make you feel like that? Does your deepest conviction make you feel like that? If not, maybe you need to take a look at it. But would I agree with whatever his thought is? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Any thought, any worldview, any belief system, it's a paradigm. It's a placeholder. It can't be perfectly accurate, but it can be accurate enough, true enough, to be able to allow us to live like that, to live like Jesus, to live our lives with that kind of hope and that kind of enthusiasm. If it's doing that, it's accurate enough. We end up debating so many issues that just don't matter in terms of what we're talking about here, the effect that they can have on our lives. And then I had another conversation. This was with Marion. We were just talking about what I should be talking about today. And she said, how about the transforming of our minds, the renewal of our minds? Because there are so many angry people out there right now. Do you see it? It just seems like it's ramping up. You look at it on the highways, you see it in retail stores, you see it on the news, everywhere. Everybody just seems to be coming unhinged and unglued. It's like we're having a collective bad mood, a collective meltdown, a collective state of depression. What is going on? And are we part of that too? Is it affecting us? Well, of course it affects us. How could it not affect us? So is it about renewing our mind? We need to talk about that. How do we do it? If we are going to be able to live our lives with the kind of enthusiasm that we're talking about here, the kind of engagement that we're talking about here, even when circumstances are not to our liking, how do we do that? How do we renew our mind? Now, Paul used that exact expression, renewing of the mind. So does that mean we're back to correcting our thoughts? Is that what renewing of the mind means? Correcting our thoughts? Do we do correct thoughts renew our minds. Is that what this is about? If we look at Paul, maybe we can get a clearer idea of what this is all about, what he's really trying to say. So let's take a look at Romans 12, and let's see if we can start to figure some of this out. Because I just spent the first 15 or 20 minutes telling you that my thoughts don't matter, and yet here we are about renewing minds. Okay, which is it now? We've set up the tension. Let's see if we can resolve it in another 20 minutes. Romans 12, starting right at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So I want you to notice that in those two verses, there are two clauses, two thoughts. The first one is all about practice, and it's all about action. You know, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This idea of your spiritual service of worship. And the other is about transformation by the renewing of your mind. Now, mind, in the Greek word standing behind our word mind, is more expansive than our idea of just mind as we typically think about it. It's about all conscious thought, all conscious emotion, will, about meaning. And so it's a larger piece, and it's bigger than just simple belief. But looking deeper, 
Both of these two clauses are anchored in the same kind of action. There is no difference at all. The two are completely connected. It's not just about thought. And I thought what would be a good thing to do is read the message version of this, because I think that brings it clearer. I don't know. You can't get the message version on the screens, right, Brandon? You got it? Okay. And it's also on your handouts if you've got those. So this is the way Eugene Peterson puts the same thing, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. See, that is so well done, I think. It really captures what Paul is saying. Renewing the mind is a fixation, a fixating, a focusing on God, on God's presence, on will, which we have always defined in here from the Aramaic as pleasure, delight, deepest purpose, desire, which in God is unity. It's connection. It is the understanding that we are all one people, regardless of our differences. To focus on that, to fixate on that, mindfully letting the world and the culture be displaced by this sense, this embracing of unity and of presence, which results in a different way of acting, a different way of living. That's the service and worship. And it's more of a contemplative renewing. It's more of a letting go. And if we move to Philippians, he seems to be continuing the thought. Chapter 3, starting at verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. What's the it that he's talking to there? He's talking about this relationship with God that we're talking about, this oneness, this connection, this perfect unity. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I think I didn't read that well. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind, letting go, starting the process of healing, all of the past trauma, all of the hurts, all of the programming that went into our limbic brain, those unconscious parts of our brain, even from as far back as our earliest memories in childhood, memories that we've forgotten that we've forgotten in childhood, that did their job of programming in us ways of surviving, ways of finding emotional happiness, ways of overcoming difficult situations, all of that, letting that go. Now, that's a therapeutic process, of course. That's not going to be something you just do. 
It's a therapeutic process. It's a contemplative process of beginning to reprogram ourselves to find that new normal. I hate to use that now because of the way it's been used. But find that new default position, that new way of approaching life, new attitudes toward life. Forgetting all that lies behind. Only action is going to do this. You can't think your way into reprogramming the neural synapses in your brain. You can't think your way out of the trauma that has become so deeply set that it colors your attitudes, colors your thinking, and the way that you approach life. Action will take you through. And so he gives us this image of pressing on, of striving for the goal, striving for the prize. But then that brings up images of, are we just all future-focused? Are we all just focused on the prize? As if this part of our life is Nebraska or Kansas, just flyover country as we get to the coasts? Is that what we're talking about here? And if we do that, are we just creating more pressure for ourselves? That we've got to press on, we've got to get to this place of perfection, quote-unquote? Is there stress involved with this? Take a look at just the next chapter of Philippians. I think he answers that question quite well, starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Pressing forward. What's this pressing forward? Pressing forward by being fully present right now. Rejoicing always, anxious for nothing. We can do both at the same time. Sometimes it's not that easy. But if we are focused on the task at hand as we're doing it, and not always thinking about outcome, always thinking about the future, we can do both. We can be working hard. We can be pressing on. We can even be striving And yet our experience is without stress, without anxiety, because we are still completely focused and present to everything that is around us. And this moment is beautiful. This moment is perfect in and of itself. Even as we strive for something different, we can do both. It's a balance, once again, not either or. It's never either or. It's always both and. In unitive thinking as opposed to dualistic thinking, it's always both and pressing forward by being fully present now, rejoicing always, anxious for nothing, and dwelling on everything that is good, honorable, pure, lovely. You'll find it in every moment if you're paying attention. Every single moment has something that's lovely and pure. If we'll just be there and let it displace the dysfunction, let it displace everything else that is behind or in front of us. This is renewing the mind. This is transformation, but it's not by thought that we do it. It's by action that we do it. 
these things you have learned, heard, and seen, he says, practice them. See the effects in your life. That's the truth of anything. If it's producing the effects, not just because you agreed that it's true in your head. Now, finally, we can come back to Romans 12 and hopefully understand it a little better. So here we go, starting right at verse 2 again. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, starting at verse 3, he goes into a laundry list for 15 verses, all the way to verse 18. I could only get up to verse 9 on this sheet, so you won't have the rest of it. So right after he says, the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God is allotted to each measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. And he goes on for nine more verses. Just the sheer weight of the two. One verse talking about the renewing of the mind that may give us the idea that this is thought-based, and then 15 verses about how this plays out in day-to-day life, in everything that we do, in every connection in our community. Just the volume of content gives us the priority that Paul sees in what he's trying to convey. This long list of this life and review of mind Paul is not talking about thoughts in isolation, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, and we debate them until someone, what, capitulates, and now we agree on something else, abstractly right or wrong. If something is right, if something is correct, if something is accurate, if something is true, it is only so in the effect of a life lived in love and in connection. You know, there literally comes a time when there's no more thoughts to think. After a while, you've read so much, don't you get the sense that you're seeing the same things over and over again, but stated differently? After a while, there's no more thoughts to think. There's no more new ideas to discover. You have the core. You have the essence. All the rest is commentary. And the commentary is not ineffective, you know. It's infinitely, these infinite different expressions are thrilling, like my friend said, and they're enriching. But nothing is renewed or transformed until we act on what we say we believe. So in a very real way, the sooner we run out of things to think, the better, I suppose. If it leads, if it leads to action, if it leads to an effect, if it leads to another way of looking at life through the cracks of the old way that we have looked at for so long. This point of of hitting this wall 
of finally seeing the cracks that you can't ignore anymore in the world around you and your way of thinking. I hit that wall back in 1994, and um, I wrote a a journal entry about it that I want to read you. And uh, interestingly enough, this was written just, gosh, three weeks before Marion and I were married, March 3rd, 1994, at 11.35 a.m. Can't say I'm not OCD. I have begun working with a client, a psychologist, who is very Eastern in her thought and spirituality. She comes at a time in my life as I grow more dissatisfied with the practice of Christianity, with the way it is practiced here in Orange County in California, with the closed-mindedness, legalism, contradictions, hypocrisies, absurdities. She comes at a time when Merton and Augustine have been breaking open great airy spaces in my heart. Places where I've come to realize that although the words are clear, who you are, Lord, is not. Who are you really? The I am. What does that mean? The eternal self-existence. What is that? There are no words for you. There aren't even any thoughts for you that can be entertained directly in our minds. We can't look you in the face. We approach obliquely. We know you only through the glass darkly. I know why most Christians, most people, stop at such a superficial level. How do you deal with that which is beneath language, beneath rational thought, outside of physics? The word is clear. Stick to that. Order your life around it. Cling to the salvation promise by clinging to the letter of the word, thereby circumventing any deeper questions. And I suppose none of this is wrong unless it leads to self-righteousness, but it is incomplete. How complete can our relationship with you be in this life, Lord? I don't know, but certainly more than I generally see around me. Again, I see that you are nothing I have imagined, nothing I can imagine, but I have to keep trying to understand. This woman comes to me at this time of questioning when I am pulling on myself in the midst of turmoil and says that Christianity won't be able to contain me very long, that I will advance beyond it. And I ask rhetorically how Christianity is being defined because I've already outgrown or better moved past the superficiality that abounds in media and literature as the fullest expression of my personal faith. Catholicism, stripped of its government and catechism, beckons with its deep and ancient mystical roots. Zen beckons as a pure attempt to approach truth by eliminating all that is untrue. And flailing away at all this, I've been steadily giving ground until I'm backed flat against the wall of my absolutes. But with these words, these questions, I feel that wall giving away also opening me up to 360 degrees of confrontation or freedom. What do I believe? Who do I believe right now that you are, Lord? In the absence of full understanding, I have to take a stand. I must have a point from which to strike out into deeper relationship. I believe you are love, Father. I believe you when you said you'd never leave or forsake. I drive a stake in the ground at the point of your love, your love that can't be altered or attenuated by you or anything I or anyone else can do or fail to do. And revolving around that stake like an orbit of ever-widening circles, I'll interpret everything I encounter in the light of your love 
and not the other way around. Whether considering your word, the scriptures that comprise our Bible, a personal tragedy, the world's cruelty, or a friend's request, I'll negotiate as best I can with one hand grasping that stake. To let go of your love as a center of all gravity is to hopelessly lose my way. This is a stand I can take, and from it flows a direction, a walk. I still don't know who you are, Lord. You're a moving target, full of surprises. Your revelations come from the most unexpected places. Your truth permeates all corners of the universe, all walks of life, all philosophies, religions, codes. But it is here I find you most fully, with my back against the solidity of your promise. In my weakness, I pray for your indulgence and guidance. And I pray you will never allow me to become so lazy, comfortable, smug, or complacent as to fail to recognize your truth wherever I find it, or to tear away at the structures I have built in my mind and life when it becomes obvious they can no longer contain the God you have revealed yourself to be. That was 27 years ago. I didn't hit certainty in any way. In fact, what I hit was the opposite. The inability to know intellectually for certain pretty much anything. And so I put a stake in the ground at the Father's love. And that stake in the ground represented a way forward in uncertainty. It wasn't certainty, but a way forward in the midst of uncertainty while I was still holding on to the truth. Now, I can't say that I've done it well these last 27 years. I'm not even doing it well now. Ask my friend, you know, or maybe we should ask Marion. But what I can say that it has been the only way forward for me, the only way forward that I've tried that has made life consistently better and better, more exciting, more thrilling, all those things that she said even in the difficult times. And I think what Paul is actually trying to tell us is that forgetting what lies behind, everything that I and everything that we have learned from pain that only brings more pain, forgetting all that, forgetting everything that I thought that I knew, thought that I understand, that I realize only brings more division, brings more misunderstanding, and miscommunication, and anxiety, and stress into my life and the lives of the people that are closest to me. Forgetting all of that, we push forward, focusing only on what is pure and lovely in each moment, with gratitude, with enjoyment, with a sense that we love the ride, and holding always on to that stake that stake in the ground that's driven at the point of the Father's love. And though I don't always feel it, having followed this path, this peace that passes all understanding, all of my ability to understand and comprehend, surpasses my ability to even think, more and more overtakes me. So, Hopefully you can forgive me for being a little inflexible on that point. But that's it. 
The effect is what makes the difference. I'm going to hold on to that stake. I'm going to hold on to that effect because it's the only thing that has made life meaningful and made the relationships sing. I think that's what Paul is telling us. That's what Jesus is telling us. And that's a deeply held conviction that you can hold on to. Now, I'm going to work harder at the balance part. We'll see how that goes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for friends that are willing to challenge. Thank you for friends who are willing to hurt feelings because they have something that they need to say, something that they feel is important. Help us to react well to those moments when we are challenged, to put down the initial impetus to be defensive, to justify, and to just take it in, see where it's coming from, and see if there is something in there that we can use to direct our lives on more solid ground as we continue to move towards you. Help us to do exactly what we've set out to do, to let go of the things from the past that are limiting us, to be able to see through the cracks of what we think we already know so that we can see what is right in front of us, what you have put here and not anything else that will help us in turn to live our lives with renewed meaning and purpose so that we can say that yes, life is exciting and learning is thrilling and gets better and better regardless of how deep the valleys may be at any given moment. That's what we want, Father. Give us whatever we need, even if it's uncomfortable, to be able to keep on that path. Thank you for your love and constancy, Lord. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.